Hello and welcome to Connect Points podcast and sermon archives. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please go online to our website at connectpointupc.com or follow us on our Facebook page. Thank you very much and I hope you enjoy this week's message. God bless. So many stories we will not tell tonight. Uh, I give honor to our superintendent, Brother Cox, for the host church here. Appreciate your leadership in the district. I see several other pastors here as well. I honor you. I appreciate your support of the youth of Minnesota. I'll try not to name names because I'll forget a few and then I'll feel really bad later. So good to see the Herbst family here this evening. They were my first friends in the state of Minnesota when I made a weekend trip, actually from Brother Brom's wedding. First time, I love to tell this story, the first time I met John Brom, I crashed his wedding. (laughs) Came up on a weekend trip with uh, Brother Andrew Herbst and was able to meet the Herbst family, and they've just always been so kind to me, and I appreciate their uh, friendship, I appreciate their love for the truth and love for the Lord. And what a beautiful building. This is the first time I've been in the new building since, we, since they moved over here. I'm stalling because I'm trying to figure out which way to go here. I'll have you turn. To John chapter 20. My wife and children wanted to be here this evening, uh, but she took a little spill on the ice and broke her ankle in two places last night. Got to have a little bit of surgery coming up in the next week and uh, all that fun stuff. So unfortunately was not able to come. I very much appreciate the the privilege to speak uh, this evening. John chapter 20. And I'm going to read from verses 24 to 28. Let's go ahead and uh, let's stand for the reading of the word real quick. John chapter 20, starting with verse 24. Say amen if you are there. It says, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them. When Jesus came, the other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. So here in context, we have a number of disciples who are trying to convey to Thomas that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. We have seen it with our very own eyes. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of his nail of the nails and thrust my hand into his side i will not believe and after 8 days again his disciples were within and thomas was with them then came jesus the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said peace be unto you then saith he to thomas so he singles out the doubter here says reach hither thy finger and behold thy hands and Reach hither thy hand and thrust thy hand into 
my side and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. It was in that moment that Thomas had a revelation that this indeed is Jesus Christ who has risen from the dead. Would you pray with me tonight? Sit your Bibles down and just lift your hands and ask the Lord to focus our hearts and minds on what he wants to do in this place tonight. God, we thank you so much for your presence that we felt here as we entered in, God, from the beginning of the worship service. God, we feel you freely moving in this place, God, and we pray that you would anoint my mouth, God, just to speak your words, to speak your truth, and to convey what I feel in my spirit tonight. I pray that you would minister to every young person, every heart, and every situation in this place, God. Let your will be done in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to try today, by the help of the Lord, to propel you forward in your faith. I I really, truly want to push you to go forward and encourage you in the power of your personal testimony. There is a modern proverb you may have heard it quoted often, and it goes something like this. The proof is in the pudding. This phrase has been morphed over the years, and really the original meaning of the phrase dating back into the 1600s at least was spoken more along the lines of the proof of the pudding is in the eating of it. And really what they were calling pudding at that time is a type of sausage, but the phrase or the expression simply means that to test of food to know its value, you had to taste it. You have to try something to know its value. The proof is in the pudding. I love me some pudding. Unless you're talking tapioca, then I'm out. I know we're in Minnesota. That's a controversial statement. But I have never turned down a chocolate snack pack in my life. I love pudding. I thought that I was the luckiest boy alive in those special days in grade school when I would crack open that lunchbox that my mom had lovingly prepared and buried underneath the ham and the cheese sandwich and down underneath that Ziploc bag full of Doritos. Is anybody else's mom cheap like that where they will not buy the individual bags, but they jam it full of the sandwich, jam it into the sandwich bags and send it along? I'm just like, Mom, the bags are not that expensive. Yes, I love pudding. There at the bottom buried is that chocolate pudding for dessert. But I cannot preach about pudding for much longer, but rather I need to preach for just a little while tonight that the proof is in the scars. The human body is an incredible thing, really, and it holds within itself the ability to repair and heal the cuts and the scrapes and the burns that are suffered to the skin, and they often leave behind a scar as evidence that the injury was suffered. It's truly amazing. And when the skin is broken, the process starts with the coagulation, what a word, to slow and stop the bleeding, blood clots to seal off the wound, and white blood cells rush to the scene to protect the body from infection. Often these collagen fibers that form in the healing process leave the skin slightly raised, resulting in a scar. My young son, Trent, he's four. He has quite the scar on the top of his forehead from this past Memorial Day. 
when asked by the urgent care doctor what happened to his head as he is bleeding and being held down for some glue to uh, glue that cut shut, he raised some serious questions, uh, started talking more and more when the doctor asked how this happened. He, he spoke up at just the wrong time and said, Daddy's shovel did it. <laughs> what he did not tell, I had to quickly explain. I, I was digging a hole and I set it down for just a moment and I turned around in time to see him drop the shovel on its head. It was not my fault, I promise. But when the doctor at urgent care hears, yeah, daddy's shovel cracked my head. It's not good. It's not a good look. This scar, like all scars, are visible reminders of that occasion. The injury itself is no longer there. The body has healed itself, again, through this truly amazing healing process. But the spot is marked with a scar as a reminder. It's a proof that the injury was ever suffered at all. Catch this, that the proof of the healing that has been done is in the visible scar. And we give Thomas a bad rap here. He is forever labeled as a doubter simply because he demanded to see the evidence. Show me the scars. I need to see proof if I'm ever going to believe that this is true. And we label him faithless. But let's take a moment to recognize the situation that Thomas was in. He indeed has seen his friend, his teacher, his preacher, his Messiah that he had followed, bruised, broken, and crucified. And he demanded to see the nail-scarred hands because just a few days before, he witnessed those hands pierced and bleeding. He watched him die, and now he is just supposed to believe that he is alive. He had seen the stripes down his back. He watched the flesh be raked and whipped by a whip in the hand of a Roman soldier. He had watched them uh, press those crown of thorns into his brow, and he watched the blood trickle down his forehead and into his face. He saw him die. So if he was going to believe that Christ now lived again in this miraculous manner, he's going to have to see the evidence that Christ is truly risen, that his friend was alive and well, that he would need to see the scars. And when you put it that way, in that context, in that light, I don't think that this is an, an unreasonable request on Thomas's part at all either. I don't think that it's so crazy that before he's going to believe that a man that he saw dead just a few days before is up walking and talking, that he's going to need to see a little evidence. He needs to see the scars. He needed to see the proof of a resurrection, and the proof of that resurrection is in the scars on the hands of Jesus Christ. And while not every scar that is suffered is physical and visible to the outside world, we all know that we all have scars. Some emotional scars left as a residue of hurt that has been caused in our lives. Some scars are the effect of sin upon our lives, things that we have done to ourself and sins that have been forgiven, yes, but the scars remain. These scars can linger for generations. Scars remain even when we cannot see them at all. Scars remain despite the fact that their bearers would seek to keep them hidden. God sets free, yes, God delivers, 
God heals, God forgives, but the scars remain. And naturally, we seek to hide those scars so often. But let me tell you that the proof of the resurrection is in the scars. The proof is in the scars. I want to be real. Much of the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he he elaborates and says that drunk, idolaters, cheaters, fornicators, thieves, lives, uh, troublemakers, liars, they shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Everybody say, that sounds like a lot of really terrible people, right? And then we come to verse 11. He says, and such were some of you, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Without a doubt, there are those that are present here whose life has been radically transformed by God, someone who has been freed from drugs, someone today that walked away from the bottle when God got a hold of their life. You laid down the pills, you laid down the booze, you laid down the perversion, the lust, the addiction, whatever that thing was or is in your life. I will say this, that I have been forgiven. I have been set free. God touched my mind. God touched my heart. He became a comforter through unbearable abuse. He brought you and me out when we did not think that there was a way out. He broke chains that you thought were unbreakable, that would never break. He healed wounds that you thought would always cause you pain. And now only the scar tissue remains as a radical and powerful testimony of what God has truly done in your life and in my life. And doubtless there are those that for the most part can say that God has kept you from it all. And really what a wonderful, powerful testimony that in itself is. What an amazing story. But I also know that your life has not been without struggles, even if that is the case, and that sometimes it's those who have lived their life relatively protected within the church that have a hard time being honest about the struggles that they do have. Say it with me one more time. The proof is in the scars. I'm careful of the phrase. I know it causes uh, some tribulation at times, so I'm, I'm careful to use it. But that old phrase, just a sinner saved by grace. Careful for the fact that it's been twisted and perverted over the years to say that you don't need to change to get God. But a sinner saved by grace, I do believe, is a, a good reminder every now and then for those of us that sit on a church pew every Sunday morning that we can't put on airs and think that we are better than anybody else because it is no work of our hands, but rather it's from the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ that we can stand and worship him. We can stand without fear and without guilt, without worry or shame. We can stand in the presence of God. We know that the veil was torn and we are allowed access into his presence because of the blood of Christ. You can lift your hands high in worship, unashamed and unrestricted, knowing that his death paid the Christ, that his blood covers your shame. He set free. He redeemed. He indeed made a way. So I am not preaching a sloppy form of grace to you tonight, but I am preaching a beautiful, life-changing, soul-saving, 
grace. And while we should no longer be sinners proclaiming a sloppy grace that says that you just come as you are and go as you are and leave as you are because Jesus loves you any way you are, while Jesus does love you any way that you are, it is Christ's desire that you be transformed, made new, and made whole. He wants to see you resurrected, walking in a new life. And we of all people should be saints of the Most High God, preaching the grace of the gospel of Christ that says, come as you are, please, and you will never be the same again. It is a grace that can save you, a grace that can change you. It is this life-changing, soul-saving grace, and we ought to be able to stand and boldly proclaim to all who will listen, let me tell you what God did for me. And if you do not believe it, I have got the scars in my life to prove it. I want to preach to somebody that you have a testimony and that the world needs to see your scars. They need to know of all things that a resurrection is possible in their lives. Students, you sit in a classroom beside other students whose lives are broken. You walk hallways with individuals that are facing unbearable circumstances. They live in broken homes. They may occasionally hear you talk about your God. They know that you may dress different. You may act different. At least I hope that you act different. I went to school once too. You seem to have a peace that they can't understand in the middle uh, of everything that's going on. They cannot understand peace because at the root of their life is constant anxiety. You seem to have something that almost looks like hope to them, but they really wouldn't know hope if they saw it because all they know in their life is hopelessness and pain. They cannot understand what you have, and they cannot begin to believe because all they know is anger. All they know is abuse. All they know is shame. Then they see what you have and how you live, and they almost want to believe it. They almost want to believe that something like this could happen to them. Maybe they could live like that. That Maybe, but they are faced with the harsh reality of their current existence. They wake up every morning to a dead situation. A new life of any kind seems anything but possible to them when faced with that reality morning after morning that their situation is dead. Hear me tonight, the proof needed to convince your friends, your family, and your peers and your classmates that this gospel is real enough to change them are the scars that you bear, the real scars that you carry. Your testimony is powerful. Your scars, your brokenness, your ability to be real with people about what God has done for you are the proof that they need to believe that new life is indeed possible for them. You see, we make it sound so exclusive. You can't earn this. You don't need to be anybody special to get access to the gospel. In fact, the only thing that is exclusive about the gospel is that it requires exclusive obedience. The Bible is very clear about that. You, you cannot do this any old way. You can't come to God any old way. God requires obedience to his word. It is his way. But God does not limit his grace to any class of people. 
God does not limit grace to any income bracket. God does not limit grace upon talent, personality, or charisma. This indeed is for whosoever will come. And somehow we get in our, in our heads sometimes that we don't deserve it. God doesn't hate you because of the sin in your life. God is not ashamed of you because of your mistakes. God hates sin, and a holy God can in no way allow or ignore sin, but God does not hate you. He hates the sin in your life. He hates what sin does to your life. I know this is going to be a shocking statement that I'm about to say here, but sin is bad for you. And God wants what is good for you. God hates sin because of what addiction does to your body and your mind. God hates sin because of the shame that it brings into your life and the separation that it brings in relationship to him. He is not some cruel God that just refuses to allow you simple pleasures of the flesh. God calls sin, sin because of what it does to your heart, your mind, your life. There are simply some images that cannot be unseen. Your mind cannot be unstretched after you introduce things to it. Some things do not go back inside the box. Not all is forgettable, but it is forgivable. The book of Proverbs says in chapter 9 and verse 10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. The fear of the Lord is simply this, the fear of operating your life outside of God's precepts or his rules, the fear of operating your life or living your life outside of God's law. So the fear of the Lord is not shaking in your boots daily that God is going to get angry with you. God doesn't play whack-a-mole with his people. Rather, it's simply coming to the conclusion that God's way is the best way to live your life. Our God is not aloof. He is not afar off. He's not just waiting for you to slip up so that he can pour out judgment, but rather he wants more than anything to have a deep, intimate, personal relationship with you where sin does not separate you from his love. Luke 7 tells us this beautiful story. I'll read from Luke 7, starting with chapter 30, or verse 37. It says, And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner... She knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisees which had bidden him saw it, he spake with him within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner." Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. So there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him the most? Simon answered and said, Well, I suppose that he that he forgave the most, he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turns to the woman and said unto Simon, seest this woman, I entered into thine house and thou gavest me no water from my feet, but she hath washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, 
But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet, my head with oil, didst not anoint. But this woman hath anointed my feet, even with ointment. Wherefore I say unto her, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. He said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. And they sat at meat with him, began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? He saith to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Her faith saved her. Because she believed, Jesus forgave. And to those that love God the most are those that have been forgiven of God the most. I know this, that she did not need the Pharisees in the room to tell her that she was a sinner. Without doubt, she had firsthand intimate knowledge of the full effect that sin had had on her life. She felt the pain. She was completely aware of how her past sinful relationships had left her emotionally broken. She did not need an outside voice to tell her that she was broken. She knows that she's broken. For a voice within her reminded her every day of her own deep brokenness. She awoke every morning with the weight of sin and shame upon her because she lived within that reality daily. She felt the effects. She bore the scars. But those that are forgiven the most love the most. Some of the others in that room that day had followed every law of God since the time of their childhood. They dotted every I. They crossed every T and they swelled with pride even on the fact that they had followed every letter of the law of God. And they were appalled that this woman would walk into the room, let alone touch Jesus. Even worse, she would touch the feet of him. And that this Jesus, who was said to be a prophet from God, would allow himself to be touched by this woman, a sinner. We must become comfortable with touching the lives of the people around us. To reach people where they are, we must get close enough for them to see your visible scars, close enough to hear your story, honest enough to connect with them where they are. We must invite them to a seat at the table, and maybe it's not a physical table, and maybe it is. Maybe it's sharing a meal with someone, but there is a spiritual table in each of our lives, of our time, our resources, our emotions, and our testimonies. Some of us have had a seat at this table since Sunday school. I will say this, and I will be honest. I, I played with Tonka trucks and matchbox cars under the pews since the time that I was three years old. And if we aren't careful, we can get awfully comfortable on that padded church pew. But we need to make some elbow room at the table. It's like when we would have family Christmas or Thanksgiving at the house as a kid. In preparation for dinner, mom would tell me to go to the closet and get the leaves for the table. How many know what table leaves are? You expand the table out and you put a leaf in and a leaf in. And I pinched my finger on those things so many times trying to get them to connect. But I would drag out four or five leaves from the closet and our, our, our four-seat dining room table would expand to eight or ten people and she would begin to fix this massive spread of food. Stuffing. 
Some people call it dressing up here, I think, in Minnesota, and they put this nasty sage stuff in it. That's terrible. Don't ever do that. It's stuffing. But the house smelled wonderful. The turkey, the ham was baking in the oven, and the house was wafting with just this aroma of holiday smells. And mom would send me off again to the the deep freeze on the back porch, and I would get the big bag of Sister Schubert's rolls, and I would bring those to the kitchen, and we would begin to unbag those and get them ready for the oven. I can still feel that cold concrete floor on my bare feet in the wintertime as I was I, I would uh, go on her errands and drag all these things out of the freezer and spread them on the cookie sheet because we were getting ready. Company was coming. And when you sit down that close to one another, when you can enjoy a meal together or you begin to share things about life with family, sometimes you learn things that you never wanted to know. At some point throughout the meal, Uncle Ed rolls up his sleeve and shows off the tattoo of the Kentucky Wildcat that's on his shoulder that he doesn't remember getting because he blacked out and, uh, some night in the Navy somewhere in the ocean. I don't know, but it, it, it was ages ago. And what a dumb thing to do to get what, what kind of basketball fan thinks that the Wildcats are that good anyway. Like a dumb decision, a mistake that he made years ago, but it's a, it's a scar of a past life that still shows. It's proof that he once was lost and that now he has been found. It's evidence of what God has done in his life. It's just one small and simple and kind of goofy example of what physical scars can look like in lives that have been changed. The proof is in the scars. And if we will open up a spot at the table of our lives and be honest enough in connection, sharing in conversation, look what God did in my life. There's no telling the impact that God can make with your personal testimony. Can, your, can you see your classmates across the table from you with a Bible study chart in your hands? Imagine a group of your closest friends leaning in and listening as you walk through scriptures and you stop and share what God has done for you personally. Can you see them running to the feet of Jesus, carrying this alabaster box full of all that life has dealt them, shedding tears of repentance and drying those tears at the feet of Jesus? When you meet them at the door and say, hey, check this out. Boy, I've got some scars to show you. Honey, take a look at this one. Look what God brought me out of. And I believe that God can do the same for you. Let's get you to an altar. Let's get you to the feet of of Jesus. You've got a testimony of what God has done in your life, and everyone else needs to hear it. The proof of the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ in your life is the scars that you bear. Look what he delivered me from. Look what God saved me from, and they that are forgiven much, they will love much. So the question is, do you love him as much as you have been forgiven, and will you love those that come after you? We don't ignore sin, we can't excuse sin, but we can love the sinner and we can walk them to the feet of the one who can forgive the sin and heal the sinner. The proof is in the scars. Follow me here for a moment. We can't skate around Old Testament law. We serve a holy God who calls his people to be holy. Be ye holy, for I am holy. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, 
clean hands is what I, what I am on the outside, what have I done, and pure heart, what I am on the inside. He seeks a generation that will worship him in spirit and in truth, and we cannot water down that truth for a moment. We are called to be holy, We're called to be separate from the world. Scripture te- uh, teaches us clearly in John 3 and 3, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Mark 16 and 6, he that believeth and is baptized shall be damned, but he that believeth, or he that is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. There's no wiggle room there. No negotiation of terms. We cannot skate around the law. We cannot skate around the truth. And uh, the epistles lay out for us a roadmap and instruction for the best way to live a Christian life. They teach us godly principles and truths that cannot stand and should not be ignored. I don't want to look like the world. I don't want to talk like the world. He called his church to be separate. With that being said, there's something unique about that four gospel books that I've never been able to get away from. I love the gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the reason that I love these books so much is that they give us this intimate look at Jesus. Four separate firsthand accounts of the life of Christ, four different perspectives, four points of view from four men who knew our Savior on a personal level. They walked with him and watched him interact with people and deal with real life issues. They watched him touch people and heal people and blinded eyes were open. Lame men walked. Dead men were resurrected to live again. And something even more shocking to me sometimes is when I read gospel accounts like Luke 7 is that Jesus seems to be just like arbitrarily passing, uh, forgiving out sins like he's Willy Wonka with a handful of golden tickets. Just, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. He simply says that he that is without without sin cast the first stone at the woman uh, who is caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And when the crowd disperses, he turns to the woman, points out that her accusers are gone, and he simply says, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Some of Jesus' last words on earth, he turns to a convicted and admitted thief hanging beside him on the cross and says, today you will be with me in paradise over and over again. We see it through the gospel books. Your sins be forgiven. Your faith has made you whole. Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more time and time again. The Old Testament reveals to us a holy God. The epistles teach us as Christians the way in which we must live and serve that holy God. But the gospels, they reveal to us the very heart of God through the manifestation of God in the body of Jesus Christ. They show us his love. They show us his grace. They show us his mercy. So as the doors of the church swing open and there are those that are looking for an answer in this world as as they walk into our services, let's meet them at the door and bring them to a seat at the table. Let's meet them at the door and bring them to the feet of Jesus. Oh, I've got some injuries. That's all right. I used to be broken too. Let me take you to the healer. Oh, you've got an addiction. That's all right. I used, I used to be an addict too. Let me, let me just take you to the chain breaker. Oh, your, your marriage is broken. Okay. Well, our, mar- our marriage was crumbling too at one point. Let's get it put back together with the hands of God. Let me take you to the counselor. Your life is in turmoil. Your heart is troubled. Let me take you to the Prince of Peace. Let me take you into his presence and let me show you my scars. 
Without doubt, there are those that can echo these words here tonight. I used to be riddled with anxiety, but God touched my mind and gave me peace. I used to battle depression, but God healed my mind and my heart, and he made me whole in him. They overcome him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Look what God did for me. The proof is in the scars. We call him Thomas the doubter because he demanded evidence, but he had seen him die. And what he needed to know that new life was possible was the proof of the scars. What the world needs to see that a new life as possible for them are the scars that you bear. What they want to know to be convinced that a resurrection is possible in their life is the scars that you bear. Can God do it for me? Is he really the God that he claims to be? Is he the healer that he claims to be? Is this really the truth? Is this really the way you have the scars to prove it? You carry the proof and you have a testimony. A young married couple who were involved in ministry raising three girls were at a youth retreat one weekend with the family in tow, and their youngest baby girl began to develop an odd bruising along her right ankle around the sock line. They had no idea what it was, but a concerned nurse that was on site suggested that they take that little girl to the hospital right away to see if they could find an answer. And what followed for them was a nightmare, a roller coaster of faith and tears and prayer that night. Prayers were lifted up across the state and even the country and the world for that precious little baby girl. Because while initially doctors were struggling to diagnose this odd bruising that was now spreading across the baby girl's body, one specialist walked into the room who had seen this condition before and immediately recognized it as meningiococcemia. It's a bacteria, same bacteria as meningitis that is attacking her body from within her bloodstream. The doctor then began to explain to them exactly what they could expect over the next several hours. He began to tell them that as this bacteria spreads throughout her body, that her internal organs would shut down one by one by one. This disease held a mortality rate at the time of over 90%. Most likely, they would lose their baby girl that night, as this bacteria would certainly overwhelm her tiny body. If by some miracle she survives, she'll have loss of limbs and excessive scarring on her skin from the effects of the disease, if she survives. So they began to pray, and they placed the life of their daughter in the hands of their God, and they watched every night that, every hour that night as nurses would come in with a permanent marker and a ruler, and they would measure the progress of the bruising that was steadily overtaking her body. Doctors made an incision on her ankle, a, a cut down on her right ankle in preparation to administer a last-ditch effort of these high-power IV antibiotics. But the IV cut down was never needed because somewhere through the night by the very hand of God, this disease that was supposed to destroy her stopped spreading and slowly out of uh, a matter of time began to recede. I have seen the pictures of that little baby girl, her body covered with bruises as it was certainly shutting down, her organs stopping. I have seen the file kept by her mother to document that miracle story. 
I've heard her father tell the story countless times, and I have seen and heard her grandfather call her his little miracle girl, and I myself have seen the scar. It's one single pronounced scar. No loss of limbs, no facial deformities, no scars from the disease itself even. Not one blemish head to toe that came as a result of that horrendous night so many years ago. It's just a single scar from an IV incision that was made by the doctors that night. One visible scar that my wife still carries on her ankle today. At six months old, the doctor said she will not survive the night. So I'll tell you tonight that if you need proof that God is a healer, I can point you to one scar. If you need proof that God is a miracle worker, I can show you a singular and pronounced scar that God is a healer, that God is able to save, that he is able to set free and he is able to heal. We all have the scars to prove it. The trouble is this, that nobody wants to show off scars. You see, scars are kind of ugly things sometimes. Scars, they're, they're really not very pretty. They can be rather unsightly at times. And with scars come memories, and with memories come shame. And we, we want to paint this picture perfect life of, of what it should be. We've got the perfect marriage as adults. We've got the perfect children. I live a charmed life. I tell you right now, that's not helping anybody to paint the picture perfect of anything. If you want to help somebody, you want to see lives changed, we must identify with the hurting. And nobody can identify with perfection. We live holy, we live separate, but we cannot live so far removed from the scars that we bear that we can no longer relate to a world around us that is hurting and that is looking for proof that resurrections can still happen. They that are forgiven much, they will love much. We must love much because we have been forgiven of so much. We must show that love to the world around us, show that love to the hurting and to the broken, to the sinner and to the backslider. And I wonder, could it be that still, you still hide your scars because you still doubt your own forgiveness? You doubt God's mercy in your own lives. How can God forgive me? How can God love me? I'm just a sinner. I can't, I can't touch his feet. I can't I can't walk into that room. I can't approach Jesus. I can't stand in his presence. There's no room for me at his table. That doubt creeps in and that condemnation begins to take over in our hearts and in our minds. But if you can believe it, he can forgive it. The world around us condemns. They, they pick up spiritual stones to hurl. They're stones of temptation. Stones that say that you will never be enough. Stones that say, just give up, just give in, just stop. Stones that say that because you are broken, you will always be broken. Stones that say because your father is broken, that you will be broken and a broken father. But they are in the middle of a crowd full of accusations. Jesus simply says, thy sins be forgiven. Thy faith hath made you whole. Go and sin no more.
Would you stand with me tonight? Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believed. Verse 30, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. That you might have life through his name by believing. That's the point of it all. That by hearing the testimony of the word of God, they might believe. And that through believing, they might have life in him. I'm reaching for you young people tonight as I close. If the music could come, God is calling you to go, to reach out and to teach the word of God to your friends, your families, your loved ones, and to share your personal testimony so that by your testimony, they might believe and that by believing, they too can experience new life. But you're hung up and you can't move past the brokenness that you feel. Struggling to overcome this cycle that you feel like you're caught up in, wanting to do something for God, but so overwhelmed by the weight of it all, the pressures, the expectations. Let me say this. God cares more about your soul than he does about your ministry. What you see as brokenness, God sees as a beautiful testimony. What you see as failure, God sees as redemption. What you see as pain and suffering, God sees as scars of healing. And those scars prove to everyone around you that a resurrection is truly possible. Sometimes it is at the most unusual times that God will speak to you. Several months ago now, on a Saturday evening, we had had a day full of just hanging out as a family, and I was probably supposed to be studying for my Sunday morning lesson, but I wasn't. I was partaking in my absolute favorite pastime, which is eating cookies and dunking them in milk with my son. My lovely wife had surprised us. She doesn't do this often, at least not anymore, uh, by baking a batch of homemade chocolate chip cookies. My son Trent and I are sitting at the table anxiously awaiting the first batch out of the oven. We've got our paper plates and our red Solo cups full of milk just waiting for those warm cookies to come out of the oven. And they're warm and they're gooey and she takes them out and she dishes out the cookies and we are salivating. And Trent goes to pick up one of the cookies from his plate. And it's, again, it's still warm. It's, it's gooey. And he picks it up off the plate and it begins to fall apart. And half the cookie landed on his plate. And without a second thought, he quickly discarded the whole cookie. Moves on to the next one. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Finish that one, Trent. Stop. No, finish that cookie. He quickly responded, no, that one's broken. And I shrugged and said, well, it's still good enough for daddy. 
And as I reached for that cookie, I was immediately overwhelmed with emotion sitting there at the kitchen table with a broken chocolate chip cookie in my hand as God said, that's how I see you. You may be broken. You may have scars. You may feel like you're falling apart, but it's still good enough for daddy. It's still good enough for your heavenly father, and he can still use you. There is still value there. Young people, as you move forward to an altar, I invite you to come and seek the face of of God tonight. I need to tell you that you're still good enough for your heavenly father. There is value in your testimony. The proof of healing is in the scars that you bear. I challenge you to find a place to pray tonight. I invite you forward to this altar to take some time with God. There is value in your testimony. The proof of the scars that you bear is what will show the world around you that resurrections are possible. But you need to know that you're forgiven. You need to know that new life is in you. You need to know that God is walking with you, that he is equipping you. He is walking in relationship with you, overshadowing you with his spirit to give you words to speak to the world around you, to give you a witness, to give you a testimony. Let's spend some time reaching out to God right now. Thank you for listening to our podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this message. Remember, if you would like to find out more information about our church or to contact us, please go online at connectpointupc.com. And also don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app so you will be automatically notified of new episodes. Thank you and we hope you have a great week.